I uh, want to say welcome to everybody here in the auditorium and welcome to everybody watching online. If you are a guest with us today, we're so excited that you're here. I hope that you find our church to be welcoming and inviting, that people are friendly and kind to you here, and that you find a place to belong with us. Um, if you are a VBS family, that your kids came to VBS this week and so you're checking out our church for the first time, I'm so glad you took that next step. I hope that you find E-Free to be a place that you can call home. I'd love to introduce myself to you and get to know you if you want to come up after the service and say hi. So we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John by looking at John 11 this morning. But before we get into that, I have a question I need to ask you. And I would appreciate if you would respond by raising a hand if this is true about you. So my question is this. Have you ever been to a funeral before? Ever been to a funeral so that's most of us in this room. And my guess is that most of the people watching online have also been to a funeral before. That I don't know what the age is. I don't know if it's 5 or 10 or 15, but there's an age that you reach where it's pretty likely you've attended a funeral. With that many hands that got, went up, it probably means there's a lot of pain and hurt in this room. It also means that as Christians, when someone is sick, we pray. We say, God, would you please heal this person? God, would you please give the doctors wisdom to know what to do? God, would you please make this medicine effective in healing whatever is going on? God, would you please make this surgery successful? And for many of us, the answer for that was probably no. That it was God said their time here on earth is done. And so prayers of God, would you, turn into prayers of God, why didn't you? God, why didn't you heal my grandma? God, why didn't you heal my mom, dad, brother, sister, son or daughter, friend? And over time, those prayers become, God, do you care? God, do you care about my pain? Do you care about my loved one's pain? Do you care about my family's pain? Do you care? And so this morning, we are going to look at a story where Jesus, Jesus has a friend who dies. And through this death of his friend, we're going to see how does God respond to our pain? How does he respond to our suffering? How does he respond to death? So would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. I thank you for all my friends here in the auditorium. God, would you please help us this morning? Would you help us to see your great and good love and care? God, would you please help me to be clear and concise? God, I pray that you would use your word to shape and mold us to see you for who you are. God, you would also use your word for, to help us see that you care. And you care so much that you sent Jesus for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your son. Pray this all in his name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to John chapter 11. So John is in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, go to the right and you will find uh, John. If you get to Acts, Romans, Corinthians, you're too far to the right, go to the left and you will find John. And if you have your smartphone, you just open it up and go to John. Um, but you knew that. So while you guys are turning there, whether it's on your phone or in your Bible, um, I want you to know that we're going to cover a lot of verses this morning. And so I cannot cover every verse and the amount of detail I would like to have covered it in. And so if you have a question about a verse that either I might have skipped or just didn't talk about more in depth, and you have this question that you were really hoping I was going to answer, and I didn't answer it, please know I would love for you to come up after the service and say, hey, I really wanted to know this. And you didn't, you didn't answer that question. I'd be happy to try and answer it. I can't guarantee I can answer any question you give, but I will do my best. 
um, if you want to come ask me after the service. So John 11, verse 1, says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany in the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So what's going on is that Jesus has been in Jerusalem and in John 10, he's having this disagreement with some religious leaders, but also a crowd of Jewish people. And Jesus makes this claim that he is God, that he's equal to God. If you're equal to God, then you must be God. And they hear that. And so they pick up stones to, to throw at him until he dies. And he says, why are you trying to stone me? And, he, and they, they say, because you claim to be God. At that point, he doesn't correct them and say, oh, no, you have it wrong. He goes, look at, the, look at my... Uh, the evidence that I've given, look at my miracles, look at my teaching, I'm God. Well, they tried to stone him, so he escapes, and he leaves the region of Judea, where Jerusalem is located, and he goes to a different region. Well, next to Jerusalem, about two miles away, is a city called Bethany. And in Bethany, there are these three people that Jesus loves, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus gets sick, so when you're friends with Jesus, and someone you care about is sick, you send for word to Jesus, would you please come back? So they send a messenger to go find Jesus. They must know where he is. They send this person to him and say, Lazarus is sick. Would you please come back and heal him? Verse 4. It says, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So Jesus' immediate response to hearing what's going on is to say, this sickness is not going to end in death. Why does Jesus make this claim when we know that as the story goes on, Lazarus is going to die? It seems like it's going to end in death. The reason he makes this claim is because end is not, death is not the end for Lazarus. In Lazarus' story, it goes through death, but it does not end in death. That Lazarus will be dead for a short amount of time, but the end of the story, the end of the sickness is life because Jesus is going to show up and resurrect him. He knows what he's planning to do. He knows what he's going to do. And so he's saying the ultimate end of this is not death, but life. So the first principle we can take away from this passage as we think about how does Jesus respond to death? Has Jesus responded to the death of the people that I care about, that you care about? How does he respond? Well, the first principle is that Jesus does not always respond the way we want. Jesus does not always respond the way we want. And that can be difficult because we want something really badly. And we prayed a lot for that thing. And it can be hard when Jesus does not respond the way that we want. But this causes me to ask the question. And my hope is it will cause you to ask the question of, is my view of God, is it big enough for God to say no to me? Is my view of God big enough for him to stay where he is when I ask him to come help me? Or is my view so narrow that he better come when I call? He better do what I tell him to do because if he doesn't do that, then he's not God. Because here we have Jesus who is God in human form revealing to us what God is like and he says no. He says, I have a bigger plan, I have a bigger purpose, and so I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do in this moment. I'm going to stay where I'm at. Now, he gives three reasons why he stays. So he doesn't just say, I'll do what I want, but he has three reasons for why he's doing this. So the first reason we see there in verse 4, where he says, 
No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. He says, Lazarus has gotten sick, and what's about to happen to Lazarus is ultimately for God's glory, that God the Father is going to be glorified and God the Son is going to be glorified through Lazarus' death. Now, there have been times in my life where this is this has irked me. It's bothered me to go, okay, God is going to afflict this person, Lazarus. He's going to let him die so he can get glory for himself. And when I'm bothered by that, I have to stop and ask myself, do I have the proper view of how the world works? Do I have the proper view of who God is? Because when I'm frustrated with God for doing this, I'm frustrated because I have this view that humans, or me, is at the center of the universe, and that everything else revolves around me, revolves around humans. And so God, God better take care of us because that's his job, because that's his place. But that's not what the Bible says about God. That's not what God, the Bible says about who's at the center of the universe. It says in Colossians that Jesus is before all things, and in him and through him all things come together. That he is what's centered to the universe, that God is at the center of the universe. Because God is at the center of the universe, God's role is not necessarily to serve me, though God does serve us because he loves and cares about us. But it's not to do what's easiest in my life all the time, that there are times he allows difficult things to happen because it's for his glory, but also for my good. And this is not the only reason that he gives. It's not just that his glory is going to come out of this, and it is. So we're 2,000 plus years after Lazarus comes back to life, and still we're talking about it. Still, it's one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It's still one of the things that people are still captivated by. They still think about and wrestle with. Lazarus was dead and he came back to life. That is some glory and honor and fame that has come to God through this event in Lazarus' life. But it's not just the glory that he's after. The second reason is in verse 5. He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. He says, I love Martha, I love Mary, I love Lazarus, so I'm going to stay here where I'm at instead of going to them when they've asked me to come to help them. So I'm not leaving where I'm at. Instead, I'm going to stay right here because I love them. Which should ask us the question, which caused us to ask the question, does my view of God have enough room for him to stay when I ask him to come to me? That he can say, no, I have a better plan. I have a better thing going on than what you're asking, and so I'm going to wait. And I am going to work on my schedule, not your schedule. So we'll see at the end of this whole encounter, what is he doing that's loving Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? So the first two reasons. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he stays. And then second, he wants to bring glory to God the Father and God the Son. Now let's look at the uh, third reason here. Verse 6, it says, So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So Jesus, two days pass, and Jesus says, All right. We are going to Judea. Pack your bags. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. We were just in Judea, and people there literally were throwing rocks at you because they wanted to kill you. Like, we don't want to go back there. And Jesus' response is, there's 12 hours of daylight. And he doesn't mean literal daylight. He doesn't mean like, guys, it's daytime. We can go. 
What he means is there's a period of time that God has given him to work. God has given him this period of time to work on earth to do the work of God, and no one's going to touch him. Not the Roman officials, not the Jewish religious leaders. No one's going to bother him. No one's going to get him until the time comes when God is handing him over to the Romans, handing him over to the Jewish religious leaders to do what they will to accomplish God's plan. It's not until that moment that he has to be concerned about his welfare. So he says, it's daytime. God has given me this window to work. We're going to go work. We don't have to worry about anybody in Judea. So then, verse 11, he says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So he says, Lazarus has died. Well, first he says he's asleep, and they go, well, he's asleep. He'll wake up on his own. He doesn't need us to go wake him up. And they go, no, he's dead. He died. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to resurrect him. I'm going to bring him back to life. And then he gives us the third reason. In verse 15, he says, And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. So the third reason is he wants to grow the disciples' faith. He wants to grow the disciples' faith. Because at this point in John, if we just look at John only, not the rest of the Bible, but just John, Jesus has already healed people who were sick. And not only has he healed people who were sick, but when the Roman official comes and says, would you come back with me to heal my son? Jesus says, just go back, he's fine. He's been able to heal people from distance. He doesn't have to be in the same house or the same location. He can just heal them. So he could have, when the messenger gets there, he could have just said, hey, go back, Lazarus is fine. But he doesn't do this because he wants to grow the disciples' faith. They believe he can heal, but they have not seen him raise someone who's been dead for four days. And so he says, I am continuing to let this happen to Lazarus because I want you to see the power of God at work in Lazarus' life so that you believe that I am completely the Messiah, that I have the power and ability to do all these things, that you would believe that I am the resurrection and the life. So then they go back, they pack up, they go back to Judea. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So Jesus sends a messenger ahead of him. as They doesn't want to go into the city. He wants to wait outside the city and have Martha come to him. So he sends a messenger. messenger goes to Martha's house and says, hey, Jesus is outside of town. He wants to talk to you. Would you please come? Immediately she gets up and goes outside. We're also told that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So this time period, they don't have any way to keep someone cold once they die. And so as soon as someone dies, they start the burial process. They probably would clean their body and then wrap them in linen, and then they're going to put them in this tomb. And so about four days ago, they would have went through the burial process, and it's very possible that people from Jerusalem would have come for this. That says it's two miles away, so they would have called for them, and they would have come they would have took part in the burial, took part in the grieving process, and they're still there grieving with Mary and Martha. And so she goes outside the city, and this is what she says to Jesus. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. If you had been here. 
if you had been here, Jesus, Lazarus would still be alive. But even now, I believe that you can do whatever. I do believe that whatever God gives you, whatever you ask for, he'll give. So what we see with Martha is disappointed faith. She's disappointed that Jesus did not do what she was asking him to do. She's disappointed that he did not come right away, that he did not heal Lazarus, did not rescue him. But she is confident that if Jesus had shown up, he would have. She has this disappointed faith. She is confident that even now, God will give whatever Jesus asks, God would do for him. My guess is in a room with that many hands that went up, there's also some people with disappointed faith. Some also some people who are going, God, why didn't you? God, I believe that you could have. I believe that you, were, you could have done it. I believe even now you can do those things, but yet you chose not to. So let's see, how is it that Jesus responds to disappointed faith? Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And he means today. He means I have come to bring him back to life. But Martha thinks, well, yes, at the end of time, God brings all his people back to life. He'll rise then. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? But he looks at Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, you don't have to wait for a day when the final resurrection is going to occur because the resurrection is not a day, it's a person and it's me. I am the resurrection and the life. Think for a moment, there's nobody else in all of human history who can make the claim that I am the resurrection and the life. There's many people who can say, I can point you to it. I can point you to where there's life. I can point you to where the resurrection is. But nobody else can say, I am the resurrection. I am the life. But here's Jesus who stands before her and says, I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait for a day because today it's a person and it's me. And then he unpacks it for her. He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So what does he mean? He means the person who believes in Jesus that trust and surrender themselves to him, even though their body dies, their souls will live. Even though their outer shell wastes away, their inner person, their inner soul will go on to be in the presence of the Lord. So as Christians, our belief is that when we die, we immediately go to the presence of God. That The Bible tells us, um, Paul says, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then Jesus, when he's talking to the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the belief is that when we die, that our bodies will be buried, but our souls will go enjoy the presence of God until Jesus returns and reunites soul with resurrected body. But then he goes on from there and he says, the one, um, he says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What does he mean by this? The one who believes in him will never die. I think he means spiritual life. So he's talking, so I think he's going back to John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. What he means is there's a spiritual life that occurs when you believe and trust in Jesus. There's this birth, this life that begins when you believe in Jesus. 
And he says, that life, it will never die. That life will never end. It will go on and on and on and on. The death cannot touch that. She says, for the person who believes in Jesus, they are united with the resurrection and the life. And though their bodies die, their souls will live. Though their bodies die, their spiritual life will continue on and on and on. And then I think he looks Martha in the eyes and he says, do you believe this? Martha responds in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Her response is, yes. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe. So then to save some time, I'm going to skip over some verses, but I'll tell you what happened. So Martha then goes back to her home. She gets Mary and says, Jesus wants to meet you outside of town. Mary hops up and she leaves. And there's a bunch of people there that are Jewish people that have come from Jerusalem that are grieving with Martha and Mary. My guess is these are friends. These are family members. These are acquaintances. These are people that care about Mary and Martha and that Mary and Martha care about them. And so the group of them goes out, and they, the group thinks they're going to the tomb, but Mary and Martha know they're going to Jesus. And as they walk outside, as they walk towards where Jesus is, they are crying, and they are weeping, and they are wailing, and they approach Jesus. And then Mary gets to Jesus, and she falls down on her hands and knees, and she says something very similar to what Martha said. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we pick it up in verse 33. In 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So of all the verses we're going to cover this morning, this is the most difficult section. And the reason is because... um, People disagree on what's going on here. There's great Bible scholars that say different things are happening here. And to save time, I'm just going to tell you what I think is happening in these verses. So the point of contention is the NIV translates this phrase, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But the Greek word that they're trying to translate, it means like the snorting of a horse. Like if you've ever heard a horse snort when it's angry. I can't make the sound, otherwise I would. But like this angry snort sound, and you're like, I'm not messing with that horse. Like, but when it's talking about a person, it means this like deep anger inside. And so the Bible commentators have to go, okay, why is Jesus angry in this moment? And so the reason I think that Jesus is angry in the moment is because he is the creator of everything. So John 1 verse 3 says, God created everything through him, him being Jesus, and nothing was created except through him. So Jesus is the author creator of all that is, and that his creation is walking towards him. And in his creation are friends, and his creation are his people, and his people that he's created. This is his creation walking towards him. They are weeping and crying and wailing because they're experiencing the effects of sin and death and destruction that should not be in the creation that Jesus created. That when he designed it in the beginning, there was not these things, and sin broke that. Adam and Eve, they broke it, they fractured, and all these things came pouring in that Jesus did not intend for them to be there. And so he sees this, and he goes, this is not how it's supposed to be. I think there's anger in him. And that's my guess because the times I have grieved with people, the times I have walked with people through difficult things, I have thought the same thing, and I'm not the creator. 
I have sat with people that are in difficult situations and said, this is not how it's supposed to be. So how much more would the author, creator of all things, when he sees it, go, this is not how it's supposed to be? Where have you laid him? Because I'm going to undo what sin and destruction has done. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. This is the other point of contention, of, of why is Jesus weeping? So I think he's weeping because Jesus mourns with those who mourn. He grieves with those who grieves. That though he knows, I'm about to resurrect Lazarus, I'm about to bring him to life, and all these people are mourning, and tears are going to turn into dancing and joy. But right now, their grief is real. Right now, their grief is present, and it's current, and so he grieves with them. He mourns with them because they are in pain, and he feels that pain. And so you, if you've wondered, does God care about my pain? Does God care about my suffering? Does God care about my grief? The answer is yes. That when he was faced with it, he weeped with those who were weeping. He grieved with those who were grieving. And so I think that he's grieved with you when you grieved. When you shed tears, I think he's cared for you in that moment. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So I could be wrong, but this is how I picture this. I think they've gone to where the tomb is, and it's in this hillside, and it's been carved out of there, and there's a stone covering it. And Jesus stands in the middle, and then Mary and Martha are on one side, and everybody else, disciples over here, and then the rest of the crowd that has Mary and Martha's friends and family and acquaintances spread out, and there's a semicircle around the tomb. And Jesus says to someone, hey, roll away the stone. And Martha begins to argue with him. She says, Jesus, please don't do this. Don't do this. He's going to smell terrible. He's been there four days. Don't do this. And Jesus turns and he looks at her and he says, did I not say that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Remember, what did he ask her earlier? He said, do you believe this? And her response was yes. And then he said to the disciples, this is happening to Lazarus so the glory of God could be revealed. So he's bringing it all together in this moment. He's saying, you're about to see all these things take place. He says, let me put your faith into action. So verse 41 So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So then they roll away the stone, and he looks up to heaven and says, God, thank you that you hear me. I know that you hear me, but I want everybody to know that you hear me and that we're on the same page here. So thank you. Then verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So don't miss this. Jesus doesn't run in and start doing CPR. He doesn't run in with incense. He speaks. I think there's this dark cave they cannot see inside and the light's shining down and he speaks into the darkness and he says, Lazarus, come out. Now why does he speak? I think because in Genesis 1, when God creates, it says, God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. 
that he has the power to create with the power of his voice. So he speaks into darkness and he calls life out of darkness. He says, Lazarus, come out. And then also, when you are the resurrection and the life, it is as easy for you to bring someone back from the dead as it is to wake somebody up. Like, this is how we wake people up. Like, especially if you have a teenager, and you're like, I'm not going to go in the room. I'm just going to shout from the hallway. I'm going to be like, Noah, wake up. Come on, Noah, wake up. Or it's going to be, hey, Brock, wake up. Come on, Brock, time to get up. Like, this is how we wake people up. But when you are the resurrection and the life, this is how you bring people back to life. Because there is no one that has claim on what you lay claim to. When you lay claim to Lazarus, when you lay claim to your people, death cannot hold them, death cannot keep them. You say, come out, and they come out. And so Jesus calls Lazarus out of death, and he awakens, and he lives again, and he walks out. And so this takes us to our second takeaway this morning. For those who believe in Jesus, for those who believe in Jesus, he responds to death with resurrection power in life. That when you believe in Jesus, when you've trusted in him, you've surrendered your life to him, then you've been united with resurrection power and life. Which means for all of us who believe, for all of us who believe, death is never the end. It's only this blip in the middle. And all that blip can do is send us into the presence of God until Jesus Christ reunites soul and body with a resurrected body. And so we can have this confidence that resurrection power in life is coming for us and to us because of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. So verse 45 says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So in this crowd, you have, again, family and friends of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus speaks into this cave. He says, Lazarus, come out. And I have to imagine that if I am in that crowd, I hold my breath. I go, what is about to happen? And I'm looking in the cave. And then the light hits the white of the linen on the wrappings, and people just go crazy. People start screaming, you can't breathe, like what is going on? Like that, like is, what is this? You begin to wonder, like is this some weird hoax? Is this, like that's not going to be Lazarus. Like I was here, I helped bury him. Like I saw him, he was dead. I helped wrap the wrappings around him. I helped place him in the tomb. That guy was dead, that can't be Lazarus. And then Jesus says, go forward and untie him, release him. And I don't know if like Lazarus hopped out because he had his legs wrapped together, if they like did individual legs and he could walk out. But, but someone, someone is brave enough to like go forward and they like grab the top of the face covering and they start to pull, peel it down. And people in the back are going, okay, that's Lazarus' hair, but it can't, it can't be Lazarus. And then he gets it all the way off and it's Lazarus and be like, what in the world? Like, that's Lazarus. We buried him four days ago, and there he is standing. Like, how, how can this be? Like, who is this Jesus? Who is this man who speaks to dead people, and they come alive? Who is this Jesus? And friends and family and acquaintances of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus believe. And so this is how I think that Jesus was loving Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
that in this room, we probably have a number of people that you go, the only reason that a family member I have would ever come into a church is if I died and my funeral was in the church. You go, there's just people that are never going to hear the gospel unless it's at my funeral. And you go, would you be willing to go through death so they could hear about gospel life that they would trust and believe? And my guess is Lazarus would say, absolutely. And so Jesus loves Lazarus. And so though they ask, would you come and rescue him? He says, I'm doing something better for you, Lazarus. You have friends and family that are going to come from Jerusalem to bury you. And then they're going to see you alive because the power of the resurrection and the life showed up in your life. And they're going to go, that guy is the Savior. That guy is the Messiah. And my life belongs to him. And so he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But then there's this group, this group that runs. I think they run back to Jerusalem. They go to the Pharisees and say, hey, Jesus just brought a guy back from the dead who had been dead for four days. And in verse 47, it says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So they gather together. They hear about how Jesus, who's done a bunch of other miracles, been claiming to be God, says that they hear how he brought a guy back from the dead after four days. And the response is, we got to stop this guy. Like, what is going on? Like, if we don't stop this, the Romans are going to get angry and they're going to destroy our temple, and they're going to destroy our people, our nation. And so they go, this is what we care about more than anything else. Now, to be fair to them, the temple is where they thought they met with God. It's where they thought they experienced the presence of God. But God is not contained by a building. And he's walking around bringing dead men back to life. And they're missing it because they are so wrapped up in their nation and their temple. So they form a plan. Verse 49, then the one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. We should kill this one guy because it's better we kill him than let the whole nation perish. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about public. Oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So from that day forward, they said, we have to kill Jesus. To protect our temple and protect our nation, we have to kill him. He's got to go. So what do we see? The last thing we see is Jesus' response, it brings belief. Belief or rejection? Jesus' response brings belief or rejection. That for some, they believe and they say, this is the Messiah, and they, they follow him. And for some, they run back and they say, we will not follow this guy because he's not doing what we want him to do. And I wish that was something that only happened for the Pharisees and only happened in this time, but it continues on to today. And when you hear it when you meet a friend or a neighbor or a coworker and you try to start telling them about Jesus. And you like, man, you know a lot about Jesus. You know a lot about the church. Like, do you go to church someplace? And they say, no, I don't go to church anywhere. I go, well, what happened? I say, well, when I was in middle school or high school or in college at some point, they had someone they loved, someone they cared about deeply. And they got sick. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed that God would rescue, that God would heal. But God said, no. 
Because Jesus does not always do what we want. And instead of broadening their view of God, instead of saying, I got God wrong, God is bigger than I thought, bigger than I expected, they say, I'm rejecting God. That if this is who God is, I want nothing to do with him. If he will not do what I ask or tell him to do, I want nothing to do with him, and they walked away. And I don't know if that's you. If that's you in this room, or maybe you online, but I just want you to know that I'm so glad you're here. And that I am convinced that Jesus loves you. I'm convinced that God loves you and he wants you to see him for who he is. Because I'm also convinced that God is way bigger and way better than we could ever imagine on our own. And so we need to throw to aside the versions of him we've made and instead accept him for who he is. And go maybe like Martha and Lazarus and Mary, he was doing something through not answering my prayer the way that I wanted and he was doing something bigger and better than I could ask. And would you consider that maybe he's bigger and better than you could ever dream up on your own? And would you be willing to see him for who he is? For the rest of us, we don't need to fear death. The takeaway for us is that if we have trusted and believed in Jesus, we should not fear death. We should not fear disease because the worst it can do is send us into the presence of God. That it is a blip. It is a short series of time that we pass through, and on the other side is life. And there will come a day, I think there will come a day, when Jesus will return to earth, and I don't know what he will say, but I think he might say something like, my people come out. And then graves and tombs will open and resurrected saints will come forward with the resurrected bodies because we love and we serve and we're connected to the resurrection and the life. So in the middle of this story, Jesus looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? And I think that through this text this morning, Jesus stands here and he looks at each of us and he says, do you believe this? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for my friends here in the auditorium. Lord, for those that are grieving right now, I pray that they would see that you grieve with them. For those that are troubled, God, I pray that they would know that you love them, that you care for them, and that you have said this is not how it's supposed to be. And you cared so much that you came to do something about it. You died on the cross to make it right. You died on the cross to give us life. That it's only through your death, your life, your death, and your resurrection that we can truly have life that it's through belief and trust in you that we can live though we die, that we can live in a way that we will never die. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us confidence. Give us confidence in who you are. Give us confidence in Jesus. Give us confidence that we do not need to fear death. We do not need to fear disease or anything else because the worst it can possibly do is send us into the presence of our good and loving Savior who is the resurrection and the life. And someday he will say, my people come out. And there will be much dancing and celebrating on that day because you are the resurrection and the life. Put this all in Jesus' name. Amen.